Okay, go with your Bibles. And as ever, do it in a big way. Right, and if you find 1 Corinthians and chapter 13. 1 Corinthians <coughs> and chapter 13. Now then, some of you are new here. I'll just uh, give you a recap of what we've been doing. We're doing a, we've been doing a series on the gifts of the Spirit. We've looked into the whole thing about Paul's teaching in Corinthians on the subject of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we covered the gifts in great detail. But we saw as well that when Paul teaches about the gifts, he doesn't do it in isolation, and that he teaches about the gifts of the Spirit in the context of two other things. He teaches about them in the context, firstly, of fellowship and being part of a church. And then secondly, and this is what we're moving on to tonight, he does it in the context of teaching about love. Love, of course, being the heart of fellowship. We've done the gifts and we've spent two studies looking at what it means to be in fellowship, what it means to be part of a local church. <clears throat> but in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about love as well, because, of course, love is the heart of fellowship. And that we can't think that we can ever isolate the gifts of the Spirit from these two subjects, fellowship and love. <clears throat> and it's love that we're going to move on to tonight. And in effect, you'll remember a few studies ago, I said that by the time this series has finished, we will, in effect, have done a complete study on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14. We'll have done the whole lot. Now then, what I want to draw your attention to is that the main teaching that Paul gives about the gifts of the Spirit, and also about fellowship and the church as well, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. All right. Now, it may surprise you that when I try and think of a way of holding things in balance, that when it comes to love, to help me get the scriptural balance, I always think of jam sandwiches, and I want to show you why. You see, the thing is that Paul teaches about the gifts and fellowship in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And he deals with love right smack bang in the middle in 1 Corinthians 13, if you like, sandwiched between the other two subjects. Now then, think about it. Um, if you've got a jam sandwich, that sandwich exists for the jam, doesn't it? I mean, two bits of bread with some butter on it put together doesn't make a sandwich. A sandwich only comes into being for the lovely stuff that's in the middle. I mean, jam and, or, you know, mature cheddar and jam, if you really want to get, you know, cordon bleu. All right. <laughs> so what I want you to see is that in the same way that, that, that like, a jam sandwich, the bits of bread around it only exist for the filling, in the same way... Fellowship and the gifts of the Spirit only exist for love because the heart of everything is love. And if we don't get this right, and if we don't see the Lord's love revealed amongst us, then in actual fact you've got a Christian life that is as appetizing as two lumps of bread stuck together with nothing in the middle. It's not a real sandwich. And can you see the heart of the matter is love? So what we're going to do for the next four studies, and that will end this series, is that we're going to look at love 
from different angles, all right? Um, <coughs> I mean, one thing, uh, diamonds are forever associated with love, aren't they? You know, give the one you love a diamond. You know how it is, sort of, diamonds are forever. The name's Bond, James Bond. I take my communion shaken, not stirred. Right? No, can you see? <laughs> and the, a diamond is made up of different facets. And the facets together make the diamond. Now, the diamond is love. And what we're going to do is have a look at it from different angles, see the different facets. And, and tonight is kind of like an introduction. We're going to actually be going through 1 Corinthians 13 and finding out what Paul is actually saying in that chapter. And I'll tell you, we're going to go into the Greek, as we always do, and you're going to be surprised at what Paul is actually saying. Uh, the English versions, uh, you know, are a bit insipid, all right, but when we get into the wealth of, of the meaning of the Greek language, I think you'll be surprised uh, just what's in there. <coughs> now, one of the things that I want to say is that, um, I mean... You don't have to go far to hear a lot of Christians talking a lot of rubbish. I mean, we all know that. But I must say that I've heard a lot of Christians talk a lot of rubbish, but I have never heard as much rubbish about anything as love. I mean, some of the most ridiculous things get said about love amongst Christians. And it leads me to believe that many, many Christians don't actually know what love is. You know, I mean, the kind of love they're, you know, they're thinking of probably has more to do with, um, you know, Valentine's cars. You know, those sickly little rhymes that you get in, in cars and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we need to understand what love actually is. Um, I mean, one of the ways <coughs> in which this shows itself is that a lot of people, I mean, Christians as well, but certainly unbelievers, they have a real problem with the idea of a God of love and the lake of fire. And they say, well, look, how can God, if, God's a, you know, if God is a God of love, how can he throw people into the lake of fire? And there are Christians who struggle with this as well. They, they can't tie that up with God's love. And you see, the thing that we've got to understand is this, that in fact God is going to throw people into the lake of fire because he is a God of love. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that because God is a God of love, he wanted to be loved for himself alone. The nature of love is that you love that person for themselves alone. And God wanted to be loved for himself alone. And he created us and he loves us for ourselves alone. But because God knew that the only genuine relationships can be based on love, he therefore had to give men and women free will. If he had created men and women so they had no choice but to love him and obey him, then all he'd have done was kind of created a planet of robots, really, who were programmed to love him, and that cannot be love. That is not love. God couldn't have done that. So therefore, he, he wanted genuine love, so he gave us free will. Now, we're created in the image of God, and God has free will. And in sharing his image with us, he gave us free will as well. Now, that free will that we have, that is our glory. That is our glory. That is what sets us apart from the animal kingdom, from the plant kingdom, from machines. We are created in the image of God with free will. And yet, you see, the point is this. 
if men and women, because of their free will, want to reject Jesus, if men and women in their free will want to reject God, then the point is, because God loves us, he therefore honours the fact that we are created in the image of God. God respects all men and women. He respects their choices. Therefore, if they decide that they don't want him and don't want to be saved, God absolutely refuses to almost, as it were, spit on their free will, disregard it and say, right, I want everyone to be in heaven with me. Can you see? In actual fact, it's because of God's love, his intense respect for us in our free will, that he will say to people, you have made your choice and I honour your choice. I have the power to make you change your mind, but I'm not going to because I love you. And therefore, even though, I mean, there's no way for us to understand the pain in God's heart that men and women are going to end up in the lake of fire. But God is willing to undergo and sustain that pain in order to honour the free will of the people that he has created. So can you see there is no contradiction between a God of love and people ending up in the lake of fire? You see, because love is prepared to make the tough choices, genuine love will go all the way in respecting free will. And therefore, can you see that there's a sense in which God can't help himself? There's nothing God can do. Because he loves us, he has got to respect our decision, even the decision of men and women who, in rejecting Jesus, that decision lands them up in the lake of fire. There's no contradiction there at all. It's because God is love and genuinely, therefore, respects our free will that the lake of fire is actually going to one day be populated by countless millions of men and women. Now, one of the things that I heard a Christian say once, and she said it in all seriousness, she was talking about love, and this will illustrate some of the silly things that Christians believe about love. And uh, we were talking about the fact that in the move of the Spirit, you know, that there have been churches that have been split uh, because some Christians have been baptised with the Spirit and using the gifts of the Spirit. Other Christians in those churches don't want it, and therefore there's a split, all right? And we were talking about this. And she was maintaining that if you really do things in the way that Jesus wants, all right, then there wouldn't ever be any splits over these kind of things. She was saying that Christians who are filled with the Spirit can do things in such a way, all right, that Christians who aren't filled with the Spirit don't get upset. And she said this, and I'm quoting her, she said, you can always tell if something has been done in love because nobody gets upset. Now, I want to tell you, that is the most, one of the most ridiculous things I have ever heard. You can always tell if something has been done in love because nobody ever gets upset. I'll tell you, no one has upset <laughs> as many people as Jesus whether it's now, or just look at his short three and a half years in ministry on the earth. Have you ever known of one man get so many people mad? No way. Now, if we're going to say 
that love will never get anyone upset. Well, I'll tell you, that makes Jesus the most unloving man who's ever existed because he upset just about everybody at some time, didn't he? Now, what lies behind that idea <coughs> is, in actual fact, that Christian love is kind of insipid. That Christian love has no cutting edge. Still, amongst many, many Christians, straight talking is called unloving. Can you see? If you call a spade a spade today in the churches, you're a troublemaker. You're being unloving. It's the same with what I will call uncompromising uh, preaching and Bible teaching. Now, we all know the Bible, all right, has lots of things in it that upsets people. So if you've got a Bible teacher who will actually teach the bits that upset people, well, then he's considered to be unloving. Can you see? And they say, well, of course, if you were doing it in love, we wouldn't get upset, would we? Which is absolutely rubbish. Uh, I mean, I can remember once at a church, the pastor actually ended up pacing up and down the hall, sh shouting at me. Because something I said so angered him, you see. And afterwards, he had the nerve to say to me over the phone, well, if you'd done it lovingly, we wouldn't have done it, would we? I mean, can you see how ridiculous that is? The truth has got a cutting edge. I mean, listen to this, John the Baptist, all right? Preaching to the Pharisees, the respected religious leaders of the day. These were the Anglican and Methodist and Baptist ministers whom society looked upon as the exponents of the religion of the day. What did John the Baptist say to them? You brood of vipers. Now then, was John the Baptist being unloving? Was he? I put it to you, many, many Christians, if they're going to be logical, if they're going to be consistent, they have got to say that John the Baptist was unloving. How about this one? <clears throat> now this is Jesus talking to the same group of people. You hypocrites! And then warned the crowds about against them. You know, and said, ignore them, don't worry about them. They're hypocrites. Now, is that unloving, I ask you? You might think it is, but it was Jesus who did it. Or how about the time when he marched into the temple, uh, you know, because they were making money out of the temple sacrifices. He marches in, and he actually braids himself a whip. He then proceeds to physically throw them out of the temple. He overturns all the tables, and he throws them out physically using a whip. Now, is that loving? Well, you might not think so, but the point is, it was Jesus who did that. Now, can you see immediately, we have got to be open to correct some of the ideas, at least, that we might have about love. <coughs> because amongst very many of the Lord's people today, in actual fact, real biblical love has been substituted with a very, very clever sort of counterfeit. It looks like love, but believe me, it isn't love at all. And look, what can actually happen is that many, many Christians are hiding from Jesus' demands on them behind this veneer of Christian love. Can you see what I mean? For instance, maybe somebody brings up maybe a Christian is part of a church, and maybe that church has got something wrong, something where it doesn't tie up with what the Bible says, all right? And then maybe a brave Christian speaks out and says, look, this is wrong. In the Bible it says, and yet we're not doing it. Now, do you know what happens? 
In order to maintain the status quo, the church, usually the leaders, kind of pile in with this, uh, you know, you're not being loving, you're upsetting people. The idea being to make them feel guilty and to shut them up. Now, can you see what's happening there? They're using Christian love, inverted commas, as an escape route from having to do what God is telling them to do. And that you can actually end up hiding from God's demands, some of which are quite offensive to us. I've often found God very offensive. And it's not easy when he says that he wants you to give him the very last thing you want to give him, is it? It's not easy, is it? So therefore, it's easy to end up hiding from God behind this veneer of Christian love. And what we're doing so often is that we're actually trying to paint our rebellion and unwillingness to be obedient. We're trying to whitewash that with kind of love paint. Whitewash it with a paint that says Christian love all over it. It's close to the real thing and people get away with it. Look, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Now, don't you think that that is ironic? Do you see something quite frightening in that symbolism there? That when Jesus betrayed Jesus to the high priest, he did it by kissing him. The very outward sign of love was the way in which Judas betrayed the Son of God. And I've seen Christians so lovingly bury people they don't like. I've seen Christians so lovingly do great evil against their brothers and sisters, covering it all with this veneer of love. Now, one of the things that we've got to keep reminding ourselves of today is that the Bible gives us a way of testing the genuineness of people with ministries from the Lord. And that test is that Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. Now, we've made a terrible mistake today, because we've ended up thinking that fruit means results. So that if you came across an evangelist who gets loads and loads of people converted at his meetings, or, or like if Christians have an evangelistic outreach, if there are people converted, they say it bore fruit. That is not the way that the Bible, that is not what the Bible means by fruit. So that if you have an evangelist and he's successful, people get converted. You say he's bearing fruit. That ministry is of God. That's right. Or someone with a healing ministry. Loads of people get healed. And you say, oh, well, loads of people are getting healed. God must be there with him. Now, when Jesus said, look, here's a test, by their fruit you'll know them, where does the Bible talk about fruit? It's in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll be ending this series with a study on that. So the point is this, the test that the Bible has given us is not results at all, but it's character. And that we know if people are moving in God, not by their success rate, be it converting people or healing or whatever. We know if someone is moving on in God and maturing in the Lord by their character. We ask, is their character becoming more and more godly? That's the test.
Now, what I want us to do now is to actually start going through 1 Corinthians 13 and to pick up everything we can from Paul about what love actually is. So go now to 1 Corinthians 13. But firstly, before we look at what love is, I want to show you what love isn't necessarily. I want to show you the way that Paul deals with things. That if we saw them, we tend to say, oh, that man must be full of the love of God, or he couldn't do these things, could he? Right, let's actually have a look now. 1 Corinthians 13, first of all, Paul says, <coughs> if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now then, speaking in tongues. If you speak in tongues... Does that mean that you're right with God and that your heart is full of God's love? I'll tell you, not in the slightest. Paul says you can speak in tongues and yet be devoid of the love of God. I mean, the way that he puts it really is that, you know, if, if you've got the gift of tongues but uh, you haven't got love, you're just an old windbag, you know? It, it's of no effect whatsoever. Look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Prophetic powers. I mean, say someone with a fantastic gift of prophecy. You know, these guys, you can go to their meetings, and they're telling you all about yourself, because they've got a gift of prophecy, a ministry. And you think, oh, oh, that's right. Oh, my goodness, isn't God with them? I'll tell you the test. You don't look at their success. Is there love in their hearts? Is their life one of the love of God. You can have prophetic powers and yet be completely out of fellowship with God. He goes on to say, all mysteries and all knowledge. I mean, you can be an amazing Bible teacher. I mean, you can have people who really, really, really understand the scriptures. And boy, are they able to communicate. Does that mean, oh my goodness, aren't they close to God? Absolutely not. I'll tell you, I'm a Bible teacher. But the fact that I can teach the Bible, does that mean, therefore, I must be right with God? Of course not. The test is, is the character of Jesus being revealed in this person? <coughs> Go down into, um, yeah, he says, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Now, we've all stepped back in amazement, haven't we, at people who've got miraculous, you know, sort of gifts. I mean, I have, you know, I mean, I've known people who've had these, you know, incredible ministries and they, they, they sort of tell you and you, sort of, you gasp at some of the things God does through them. And that's absolutely right. But because they're able to do that, does that mean that therefore God's love is in their hearts? I'll tell you, no. Paul says, look, I might have the most incredible faith ministry you have ever seen. But he says, but if I don't have love, he says, if I'm not living day by day, close to Jesus, living a sacrificial life for other people, then he says, it's absolutely nothing. <coughs> Faith ministries, signs and wonders. And God has raised people up, hasn't he, to work signs and wonders. But the point is, a sign and a wonder, a miracle is a signpost. And it's there to point away from itself. A signpost doesn't point to itself. A sign points away from itself to where you want to go. A miracle 
is simply a signpost to Jesus. Now I'll tell you, if people have miraculous powers without love, do you know what the tragedy is? People see them. They don't see Jesus. They see them. They're no longer acting as a signpost. Can you see? The only thing that is really going to reveal Jesus in all his glory isn't just his power, but it is his love. Think about it. We're praying that there'll be a real increase in the miraculous gifts in this country today, and we are right to pray that. We are looking for a great outpouring of signs and wonders, and we are right to do that. Well, I want to tell you something. If those signs and wonders are to be done amongst us, and yet the love of Jesus is not just pouring out, then I'm going to tell you that miracles worked by people who are not really moving in the love of God I'll tell you, those miracles might just as well be counterfeit. They might just as well be satanic. And I'll tell you why. One of the jobs of miracles is to show forth what God is like. Miracles show us that God is incredibly powerful. But God works miracles through us, his people. If the world out there sees signs and wonders worked by believers who are not moving in the love of God, then I tell you they are going to end up seeing God's power without God's love. <clears throat> and that, I put it to you, is going to be frightening. God never reveals his power without his love. Can you see what I mean? If signs and wonders are going to happen without it being in the love of Jesus pouring out amongst us, then can you see why I'm saying that those signs and wonders might as well be satanic? They are not going to glorify Jesus because all they're going to do is to show him forth as being incredibly powerful. Now, Jesus is incredibly powerful, but before the Bible tells us that God is power, it tells us that God is love. Now, can you see the danger if signs and wonders are worked without the love of God? It's going to give the world a totally wrong impression <coughs> of what God is actually like. And therefore, they might as well be satanic miracles. They won't glorify Jesus. All they'll do is make people frightened of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want people to be frightened of him. He wants them to see his power, but he wants them to know that he loves them. Now the world is going to see his power when we work miracles, but they are only going to see his love in our lives. Can you see why I'm emphasizing that? Let's not ever desire to move out in the miraculous unless we are already moving out in the love of God himself, because it's going to be absolutely counterproductive. He goes on to say, <coughs> if I give away all that I have. You know, if we saw sort of people who were giving away every spare penny that they had, we would say, oh, must be love, must be love, mustn't it? Well, I'll tell you, not necessarily. Now, if you give loads and loads of things away because of love, that's fine. But you can also do it from motives other than love. I mean, sometimes I've met people 
who do give loads and loads away. There's no question about it. Real sacrificial giving. But boy, they make sure that you know about all this sacrificial giving they're doing. Can you see what I mean? That is doing it for totally the wrong reason. And if you do it for the wrong reason, it brings no glory to Jesus. It is absolutely um, useless. And he says, and if I deliver my body to be burned, that I may glory, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, except that a man lay down his life for his friends. <clears throat> so if we saw someone actually being martyred for Jesus as a Christian, we would say, well, my goodness, Oh, you can't get more loving than that, can you? And yet Paul says, but if I do that without love, then it's nothing. You see, the thing is, you can even lay down your life as a martyr for the wrong reasons. This is where we really have to be honest. We really have to examine ourselves before God. Because, for instance, I mean, you don't have to lay down your life in this country, you know, kind of literally, because we're not being persecuted like that. But say in Russia or places, China, where Christians have to. Can't you see that someone might get in a situation where they've got the chance to be martyred? And they say all the right things and they get martyred. And everyone thinks, oh, oh, what wonderful Christian. Oh, don't they love the Lord? They got martyred. You see, the point is they might have got martyred precisely because they knew that people would be saying, oh, weren't they wonderful to give up their lives for Jesus like that? Can you see? For everything that outwardly looks loving, there can be another motive lurking in our hearts that is nothing to do with love whatsoever. It's to do with gratifying our own sinful nature. Now, let me tell you, <coughs> there have been many, 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 inverted commas, good things that I've done since I've become a Christian, all right? I ways that I've done things in service for the Lord through the years, which anyone looked on and they say, this is good. And indeed, anyone who really loved God would do it. But I look back over many, many years, and I've told you before, that, that for years I lived in the fear that I might lose my salvation. I mean, praise God, I know that I can't now from the Bible, but I didn't then, all right? And that I had this wrong picture of God, this idea that God up there with a big stick and that one day he's going to get me, you know, he'll really get me, you see. And, uh, and I lived in fear of God all the time, you know. I mean, I, I wasn't aware of any love he had for me. He was a taskmaster as far as I was concerned. And yet I... You know, I got that wrong. I'd misunderstood him. But nevertheless, that's the type of God I believed the Bible talked about. Now, there, for years and years and years in my Christian life, I can look back and I can see many, many things that I did, which other people looking on would say, he's doing that because he loves Jesus. But I know that that isn't the case. And I will tell you why I was doing those things. I was doing those things because I believed that I would gain acceptance with God if I did. Now, can you see? If Christians are doing good works of service in order to get acceptance with God, then all those good works that they're doing aren't good works at all. They are being done for totally the wrong reasons. For instance, if you're in trouble and I help you, all right? That's great, you might think, terrific.
But if I help you because I'm frightened of what God might do to me if I don't, then can you see my motive isn't your good, is it? So if you're in trouble and I help you, there are two possible motives. If I help you because I love God and because I love you, that's great, that's terrific. But if I help you because I think it's going to further my acceptance with God, can you see it's absolutely valueless? Because I haven't got your good at heart. I've got my good at heart. It's a totally selfish thing. I mean, <coughs> think of like the Eastern faiths, all right? There are loads and loads of these faiths coming over from the East, aren't they? Now, all of them are pantheistic. Very, very briefly, they don't actually believe in objective reality. They believe that everything is God that we are just a phase that God's going through. We're kind of like, uh, we're what God is thinking about, all right? And that salvation is in realising that you don't actually exist. The big deception is to think that you are real, all right? So therefore, salvation is that when you realise that you don't actually exist, you merge into the everything of God. Can you see? And then that is salvation. So, in actual fact, to them, salvation is a continuous process of unbecoming. Can you see? Ceasing to exist. Now, in these Eastern faiths, some of them had very, very high moral codes, indeed. <coughs> and the adherents of them really do live quite sacrificial lives, and they do many, many, many good works. But, you see, the problem is this. They're doing those good works in order to get their minds off of themselves. That is the first step in your salvation, because remember, you don't exist. <clears throat> so if you can get lost in other people, that is the next stage in you unbecoming and being saved. Can you see what I mean? So all these good things they do to help people, it's not for the good of the people they help, because they don't believe that they exist either. Can you see? And the, the question is that they do their karma, they do their good works, purely because the more they do, the more they'll cease to be, and the sooner they'll merge into the everythingness of God. All right? So therefore, when you've got people doing lots of good works for that reason, their reason is completely selfish. Can you see? It's not for the good of the people they're helping. They're doing it as part of their progress uh, to what they see as being, um, you know, sort of a, their salvation. I.e., their motives are not selfless. There's something in it for them, and that, by definition, means that it is not true love, all right? And it's like, for instance, take the Pharisees. I mean, Jesus often had a go at the Pharisees because they loved the praises of men, all right? And, uh, and Jesus often said of them, he said, leave them alone, they have their reward, all right? Now, then, the point is that if we move in the love of God, that is of value for eternity. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we will receive reward for that, all right? But if you want to, as a Christian, live on the level of getting people to think well of you, all right, so if you do good things, and maybe witnessing to people or, or, or helping someone if they're ill, all these are good things, they ought to be done. But if you do those things because you love God and the people you serve, there'll be reward at the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus is glorified. But if you're doing it so that people will think what a wonderful Christian you are, 
then the truth of the matter is this. You've already had your reward. You wanted people to think well of you. You wanted people to say, oh, what marvellous Christians, all right? And the more gullible around you will do that, all right? The more mature will see right through you. But there'll always be gullible Christians who will give you exactly what you want. They'll think, oh, what a marvellous Christian, you see. Or, oh, oh, what a ministry of healing, can you see? And they'll idolise you, and that's what you want. Now, at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll step forward for reward. And do you know what Jesus will say? He says, you've had yours, mate. You wanted everyone to say how wonderful you were. And they've done that. You've had your reward. Can you see how ridiculous it is? We're going to be seeing that true love is only revealing itself when it is selfless. All right. So then, we've seen many, many things you can do which, if you loved, you would do anyway, but that can be done even if you don't love, because they can all be done for the wrong reasons. They can all be done from selfish motives. So what we're going to move on to, we've seen what, it you know, what love isn't necessarily, so now we're going to see what it is. Now, first of all, we're going to have a very quick look at the Greek words, because in our language, if you want to say love, there's only two words. Love, L-O-V-E, and love, L-U-V. Now, that ends the kaleidoscope of choice in the English language, all right? Now, in the Greek language, there are loads of words for love, and they all have different meanings. For instance, there's eros, which is physical love, primarily. There's Philadelphia, and I'm not talking about sandwiches again, all right? There's Philadelphia, cheese, Philadelphia, oh, forget it. Yeah, there's Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. There's storge, which is family love, all right? And there are different words in the Greek for love. Now, interestingly enough, the Greeks used, they believed in God, not the God of the Bible, but they believed in God. And uh, they used eros, for the love of God. They did have a concept that their God was love. And the word that they used for their God's love was eros. And that was the standard word used in the ancient world for God's love. Um, in fact, Plato said that God is eros. God is love. Now then, when the early church were on the scene, they... they they had met with Jesus. They knew Jesus. Now, Jesus, he was just so totally different from anyone else they'd ever met because he was actually the true God. Can you see? He was the true God who revealed all the false gods. And, of course, Jesus' love hit them between the eyes again and again and again. And they knew that they were going to have to preach about the love of God revealed in Jesus. And they had all these words in the Greek that they could have picked for love. And they didn't pick any of them. What they did is they picked on a Greek word that had just about fallen into disuse at that time. And it was a little Greek word, agape. And they latched onto that Greek word. And when they wanted to talk about the love of Jesus and the love of their God, then agape was the word that they used. And I will show you now why it was that they picked that word. Because the meaning of agape is this, outgoing 
altruistic compassion. Now, altruism is when you do something purely for the benefit of the person you're doing it for. There's nothing in it for yourself. Outgoing, altruistic compassion concerned only with its object. Now, that was the word that they chose to describe the love of God. A purely 100% selfless love. And they were saying that God loves us and there's nothing in it for him whatsoever except that he loves us. Can you see? God thinks of us first and himself last. Now, there's an Old Testament Hebrew word which is roughly the equivalent, and it's chesed, all right? That's how you say it, chesed, all right? And that means a spontaneous feeling leading to or impelling to self-giving, all right? So then, what we've got here is that in the Bible, this word chesed in the Old Testament, or agape in the New Testament, these words are only used of God's love. They're never used of our love for God. They are only used of the love of God himself. All right. And the nature of that love is that it is totally selfless. God loves us and wants to give to us regardless of whether or not there is anything in it for him. Now, on 1 Corinthians 13, Paul uses the word love quite a bit. And the Greek word he uses is this agape. But I want you to remember that that word is only used of God's love, not our love. It is only ever used of the characteristics of God and the nature of God. It is never used for our own characteristics or nature as human beings. Now, the truth of the Christian life in Romans 5.5 is this. Don't turn to it. Paul says, for the love of God, the agape of God, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see in these talks about love is that Jesus said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Now, the teaching of the Bible is not asking us to love each other with human love. The Christian life is the fact that Jesus is in us. He wants to live through us. He wants to express himself through us. Therefore, his very love is going to be in our hearts for each other, isn't it? And that the kind of love that we want to see revealed amongst us isn't the love that we can come up with. It's the very love of God himself. The very love of Jesus himself. And uh, the way to think of it is quite simply this. Love is Jesus being himself through us. Now we're going to go now to look through the verses when Paul defines what love is. He defines it. And I want you to bear in mind all the way through that the love that we're going to be talking about is not something that you and I can come up to. 
it's purely dependent on God being able to reveal his love through our lives. Go to verse 4, and let's go through this point by point. He says, first of all, love is patient. He's now defining what love is. Love is patient. Now, that Greek word is macrothumia, all right? Patience, macrothumia. And it comes from two other Greek words. Macros, which means long. You get macro lenses, don't you? And things like that. And thumos, which means a temper. So that what you've got literally is long-tempered. All right? We're seeing here that love is very long-tempered. It is slow to anger. It's never on a short fuse. Now, one of the favorite Old Testament sayings about the nature of God is this. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is very, very patient. It is macrothumia. It is long-tempered. And that this Greek word normally, when it's used, it normally specifically refers to patience towards antagonistic persons. Can you see? <clears throat> so the point is, the opportunity that God has to reveal his patience is precisely when people are being antagonistic towards him. That's what this word means. It means that when you have got people doing everything they can to hurt or harm you, it's then that this patience, this long-temperedness, shows itself. Now, can you begin to see the patience of Jesus on the cross? What those people were doing to him, what was his response? Did he blast them with thunderbolts? He could have done. Did he call the angels down to wipe them out? He could have done, but he didn't. The most he said was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, that is patience. That is a slow temper. Can you see? It's a very long, burning fuse. Now contrast that to ourselves who often end up on this very, very short fuse. Look how impatient we can be. Isn't it incredible? You see, the proof of God's patience is simply this. Patience is our eternal security. The fact that it will never get to the point where one morning God wakes up and thinks, right, I've had it with you, and sort of wipes you out of the book of life. It doesn't matter how far we push it, our salvation is secure. Now that is the patience of the love of God. And he wants that kind of patience, his patience, to be revealed in us. And it's like once I heard about someone sort of praying, they realise that they need patience. They say, Lord, I want to be patient. And I want to be patient now, you see. And, and of course, it takes time, but God wants to develop this patience, the, his own patience, that characteristic, he wants that. He wants to develop that through our lives. Now, the second thing Paul says is that love is kind. Kind. Christuomai in Greek. And uh, it means good, it means pleasant, it means gracious, and it means serviceable in the sense of being of assistance. Alright? I means helpful. Helpful. When you come up against kindness, there's, there's always a kind uplifting word. 
The reason being that kindness is concerned about you. Kindness isn't concerned about itself, it's concerned about you. So it's like, for instance, um, you know, I mean, if uh, someone pains you because they've got problems and maybe they're a bit down, a bit depressed, and they need cheering up, kindness will always have what's needed. You just lift them, all right? What kindness will not do is this. You've all had it, you know, when maybe you go to someone and you're a bit down, and you just, just need help. You just need them to lift you up, just to encourage you. And you say, oh, I'm having a rough time. You know, they look at me and they say, yes, I'm awful, what is there? Oh, I can't believe what happened there. And, and there they, you've gone to them and saying, look, you know, will you help me? And, and, and they just bury you with all their problems. Now, kindness doesn't do that. Kindness is only ever going to concern itself with helping the person in trouble. I was like, do you remember Job's comforters? I mean, there was Job going through all those problems. <clears throat> and the reason he went through that wasn't because he wasn't right with God. Job suffered the way he did precisely because he was right with God, alright? But along come his comforters. And yet the thing about his comforters, they were more concerned about their, their doctrine than they were about Job. Consequently, they weren't open to hearing from God, and they fed Job entirely the wrong advice. Because in actual fact, all the sound doctrine that they poured out of him, it was wrong doctrine. And at the end of it, God said, you have not spoken what is right of me, as has my servant Job. Then along came the comforters, and they weren't being kind. And the reason they weren't being kind is because, yeah, they were worried about Job, but they were more worried about sticking up for the doctrinal truth. But you see, their doctrinal truth was wrong anyway. And if they'd have just loved Job a bit, they'd have realised that, how unfair and how rotten the things that they were actually saying um, to him. They weren't being kind. I mean, one of the most amazing examples of kindness, again, with Jesus on the cross, is that while Jesus was hanging there on the cross in torment, in pain, in terror. Outside of saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, he then made arrangements for John to look after his mother. Now that is kindness, can you see? That is being of assistance. There was Jesus dying on the cross, Mary, his mother, absolutely, well, falling apart, standing underneath the cross. And Jesus looks down and he arranged for John the Apostle to look up. Now can you see, that is the selflessness that is involved in the love of God that we are talking about. Right, Paul says, (coughs) love is not jealous. Not jealous, zelu, right? And, and that word zelu, it, it means to burn or to boil, alright? Now, you know what it is, uh, perhaps, when somebody who perhaps you don't like too much, they are, they're doing very well for themselves, and you're not. They're on an up, and you're on a down, alright? And you think, oh, it just makes me burn. Or, oh, they always land on their feet, don't they? Oh, it makes me boil. Born with a silver spoon in their mouth, they were... Now, can you see? This is jealousy. Can you see? This is just burning up. 
with envy. It's exactly the opposite of what genuine love is, because genuine love, if someone does well for themselves, you'd be pleased for them. And when you see someone doing well for themselves and it really makes you angry. Now, obviously, sometimes we see people doing well for themselves through dishonesty and, yeah, that makes us, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about when someone, quite legitimately, I mean, sort of say, say someone, their dad dies and leaves them £50,000 or something, all right? And you find yourself annoyed about it. You should be thrilled for them. And I'll tell you, much more likely to give you some if you're thrilled than if you're... No, no, totally just strike that from the record. I didn't mean that. No, but can you see? You should be delighted for them. But instead, it, oh, it makes me boil. They always land on their feet. Oh, poor old me is really what it boils down to. Now, that is jealous. That is, you know, that is being jealous. And that is the exact opposite to what God is like. Now, I know that God says that he's a jealous God, but that's slightly different. His jealousy, to that extent, is obviously he doesn't want us to go after false gods. Not least of all, because if you go after a false god, you end up with a false salvation. All right. So don't get it mixed up with the jealousy of God that is there for our own good. All right. But can you see the kind of jealousy that I'm talking about? When someone is blessed, and rather than being thrilled, we find ourselves seeming on typical isn't it? You know, you know the kind of thing. That's jealousy. Love is not jealous. All right. Now then, Paul also says that it is not boastful. It's not boastful. Purpuruomai. Now this sounds like an Italian sausage, but it isn't. It's a Greek word, purpuruomai. And what it means is a braggart. A braggart. Now, obviously, we all know very obvious, blatant, loudmouth braggarts, you know, I mean, who kind of, yeah, I mean, it speaks for itself. But I'll tell you, when we become Christians, there's a very much more subtle type of branding, all right? And in fact, you can be a braggart as a Christian and yet be very, very spiritual. I want to tell you how. You must have often heard of people giving testimony about what God has done. Now, it's marvellous to give testimony about what God has done. I mean, I'm not knocking that at all. But you know what I mean when you hear testimonies where it's not so much that the person is giving testimony as to what God has done, but they're all the time giving testimony as to what God has done for them or what God has done through them. Can you see what I mean? In effect, what they're doing, they're trying to impress you with their testimony. Can you see? Oh, it's like we may be having a sharing time, all right? And most, it's good to come out with things, but most of us, most of the time, we come out with rather ordinary things, rather mundane things. And I'll tell you why that is. Because God has put us in a very ordinary and mundane world. And it's right that most day-to-day testimony is rather ordinary and mundane. So there we are you know, sort of giving our very ordinary, mundane little sharings, all right? But these people, they only speak up with a really dramatic miracle. Can you see? Not for them sharing little mundane things, no. And you see, they give the impression that they had miracles for breakfast. But you see, what you don't realise is that they've been telling you about the same miracle the last ten times you've met them but they've just changed it slightly so it sounds like 10 different. Can you see what I'm saying? 
And, and I see this a lot amongst Christians, and it's something we've got to guard ourselves. Love does not brag. Love is not boastful. And yet we can end up really playing one-upmanship with each other simply in sharing testimonies. Now, if God has done something really dramatic and supernatural for you, please share it, of course. But can you see what I mean when you get into this one-upmanship and people who are always trying to impress wherever they go with the dramatic things maybe that have happened to them and sometimes I hasten to add things that haven't in fact happened to them. Some people are very, very good at making a mountain out of the molehill. And when you look at the evidence, it wasn't anything like what they said at all. But then there are many Christians, sadly, who tend to live in this type of cloud cuckoo Now, we've got to watch it. We've got to watch it. Let's make sure we're not trying to impress each other with what the Lord has done for us. Let's be honest with each other. We don't need to blow our own trumpets like Let's face it, if we're nothing before God, if we're miserable sinners in need constantly of God's grace, what is there to boast about? I'll tell you, Paul said, I would rather glory in my infirmities. Alright? So then, the question is, how often do we testify of our failure, our weakness? I'm not saying we've got to start being proud of our weakness now, can you see? Or that we've got to be like, you know, a load of neurotics coming together to see who can outdo each other for badness or something. But can you see the point? Let's be honest. Let's be balanced. Please, when God answers a prayer, you share that with us. But please, when God doesn't answer your prayer, will you share that with us as well? Because I have a very unnerving feeling sometimes that I'm the only one who doesn't get his prayers answered. And I can't be. I can't be. Now, can you see? That's why Paul says, James says, confess your faults to one another. Let's have no boastfulness. Love isn't like that in any way at all. Okay, right. He says... It is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. Thusio. Alright? Thusio. Now you won't believe this. Thusa in Greek is bellows. Bellows. You know that you use to sort of like get the fire going. Sheer hot air. Now you know what it is when you meet arrogant Christians. Paul talks about people strutting around. You see bellows, they're puffed up. Strutting around like cocks. You've seen them. Full of their own self-importance. Look at me. Look at me. I mean, it's like it kills with these churches. You know, where it's sort of like when the service starts, you know, instruct the leaders. I mean, not for them just sitting amongst the people, is it? They've got to be up there on the platform where the leaders and, you know, kind of like all the plebs, they, you know, they're there for the beginning of the service, all right? They're chatting amongst themselves quite happily, okay? <laughs> then what happens? Suddenly, silence descends. And the elders and the ministers, they mark, everyone stands up, you know, they don't salute, but really in their hearts they are. And in they strut, and they're, they're all, they're churches where you're never allowed to forget who the leaders are. Can you see how ridiculous that is? And there's a great tendency towards there. Uh, this arrogant, this bellows being puffed up. Look at me. Now look, I'll tell you, if we're secure in Jesus, it doesn't matter if people don't look at us. All that matters is that Jesus is looking at us. Can you see that that kind of arrogance, you know, strutting around, full of self-importance, that is the opposite of love, believe me. Now then, Paul says as well, uh, that it is not rude. It's not rude. 
now then, Ascomonio, and, and that, let me say, let me say, I am not responsible for how I pronounce Greek, alright? I'm happy to be responsible for whether I translate it correctly, but I don't hold me responsible for how I pronounce it, alright? But, uh, Ascomonio, at, at any rate, okay? Now, this means to bring disgrace, alright? It's not rude, it doesn't bring disgrace. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 36, Paul deals with the uh, plight of uh, people who are engaged but not married yet. And he says that if anyone thinks that he is behaving himself improperly towards his betrothed, let him do as he wish, let him marry, it's no sin. And that phrase, not behaving himself properly, that is this same word, rude or improper, what we might call an impropriety. All right. Now then, it's got two aspects to it, really. Uh, I mean, anything that brings disgrace, all right? I mean, for instance, humour. There's good, clean humour, but there's a humour that demeans and brings disgrace. Can you see? That would be an example of what love doesn't do. No problem having a good old laugh. Can you see? But anything rude, anything disgraceful is not on for us. But the other side as well is that you can be rude to people. Now, the point is, love isn't rude, and for this reason, uh, often you see people, when someone is rude to somebody else, really, what they're trying to do, they're trying to demean them, aren't they? Can you say? Uh, especially if they do it in front of other people. This is why tongue-lashing people is so terrible, so terrible, because what you're doing is that you're reducing them to less than they are. They are a human being created in the image of God. Now, when you're rude to people, you're trying to demean them. You're trying to make them feel that they're an animal or that, 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 that they're ghastly. Can you see? That is why it's so wrong to be rude. Now, we're free to speak our mind to each other. Yes, God will speak his mind, but God will never be rude. You will never, ever find yourself demeaned by God. God will humble you, yes, but God will never, ever humiliate you. I've often been humiliated in my life, and when I look back, it has always been either because of my own sinfulness or someone else's. God will never demean or humiliate you. He'll speak his mind to you, but he'll never demean you. And we must make sure we don't demean each other. We've got to remember we are made in the image of God. And that doesn't just mean us. That means unbelievers. That means child molesters. That means IRA bombers. I don't mean that justice shouldn't be done. I'm not saying that punishment and tough punishment shouldn't be meted out. But let us make sure the whole time that we respect all men and women and children for what they are created in the image of God. Let's put away all rudeness, no matter how it is. Any attempt to demean people, let's lay it aside. Any attempt at dirtiness, let's lay that aside. It's an impropriety, and it's something that the Lord doesn't like. Okay, right, Paul then goes on, and he says, it does not rejoice at wrath. Oh, sorry, I've got the wrong one here. Love does not insist on its own way. All right. Now, this is the opposite of being submissive. If all the time you insist on having your own way, that's the opposite of love. Can you see, if we were willing to give in about things that don't matter, and I think this is the rule for us as Christians, 
If it really matters, well, okay, fine, stand your ground, if you really believe that's right. But for heaven's sake, if something doesn't matter, give in. Give in. Don't stand up for your rights if it doesn't matter. Can you imagine how wonderful it would be in fellowship if we were all like this all the time? Not insisting on our own way, but always willing to let the other person have their way. That would be wonderful. That's the submissiveness that the Bible speaks about. And here, Paul says that love doesn't insist on its own way at all. Now then, he says that it is not irritable. Irritable, paroxuno. Alright? And do you know what it means? It means to sharpen. Sharpen. Uh, or to rouse, to anger. You know the kind of thing, irritability. Uh, I'm having a bad day. If you come near me, I'm going to make sure that you have one too. Now... <coughs> Now, firstly, can you see how irrational that is? I mean, isn't that stupid? Isn't that stupid? But remember, the word means to sharpen, all right? Now, I mean, when we're irritable, what we do is we deliver a series of sharp stings to anyone who comes near us, don't we? Sharpen. Waspish. It's all about someone being waspish, you see. You know, when you feel crikey, they need a face full of fly spray, don't they? Now, can you see... Isn't it wonderful to know, isn't it wonderful to know that God isn't like that? I mean, let me ask you, when was the last time that you prayed, all right, and you said, oh Lord, you know, I've got this problem. When was the last time you went to Father in prayer and you heard him say, clear off, come back tomorrow? I mean, you've never heard God say that, have you? (laughs) Now, isn't it incredible? I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine, I mean, God getting irritable, I mean, what chance would we have? You know, if God got irritable with us, our love isn't irritable. Love is consistent the whole time. You know, we need to, you know, and sort of like we go through irritability spells, and I mean, we really do need to to look at that because the Lord can do something about it. I'll tell you, it is indeed the opposite of love. And then Paul goes on and he says, um, it is not resentful resentful. The Greek word there is kakos, and it means evil. It means thinking or bearing evil towards something. This is when you've got it in for something. When you've got it in for something. Can you, I mean, this can happen. There's one person, any chance you get, bang, you're in there, because you've got it in for them. That is the opposite of love. And I mean, isn't it good that God hasn't got kakos in his life? Can you imagine what it would be like if you were the person he had it in for? I mean, wouldn't that be awful? Well, God isn't like that. He hasn't got it in for anybody at all. All right, and then he says <coughs> that love does not rejoice at wrong. All right. Um, rejoicing at wrong, it's, it's kind of sometimes, you know what it is when there are people lying in wait for you? They've got it in for you, and they're just lying in wait to catch you out. Now, if you slip and you do something wrong, all they're licking then, oh, we've got them now. We, out comes the phone. Oh, do you know what so-and-so did? Whoosh! It's through the Christian grapevine, just like that. Now, can you see what an awful thing that is, rejoicing at the wrong? You think, you know, well, this guy's fallen into sin, or this woman, she's fallen into sin. And that's your sadness. But you see, when you're rejoicing at the wrong, what you're doing is, oh, great, oh, this is brilliant. I've got them now, you see. Oh, I can stick this on them now. Now, can you see how awful it is? God, uh, uh, love doesn't rejoice at, at wrong in any way at all. And you see, with these people, if if you do sin, they lay it on thick. Can you see? 
that they'll use <coughs> your sin to get power because they won't let you forget it <coughs> maybe you've sinned against them and you've said sorry and it's gone <coughs> and yet they're not going to you know because that sin that you did against them it's given them a little bit of power they can rub salt into the wound every now and then isn't it marvellous to know that when God forgives our sin it is gone he says their sins I will remember no more but alternatively Paul says it rejoices in the right so that if you ever see people being blessed I mean you are just blessed with them you know can you see you just love it and also, rejoice, love rejoices in the right, it's also meaning a love of justice. I'll tell you, if the love of God is really shed abroad in our heart, if we see people being the victims of injustice and oppression, we'll be there with them. Because we're going to be rejoicing in the right, and we're going to step in there with them as the underdog, and we're going to fight by their side to make sure that justice is done for them, and to make sure that the good and the right eventually prevails now also Paul then goes on to say that love bears all things now I'll tell you the Greek word you, you wouldn't have the foggiest idea from the English language what Paul is actually saying here when he says love bears all things because the Greek word here is stego and this is what it means to protect by covering and then to conceal to protect by covering and then to conceal. Now, does that remind you of something that a guy called Jesus has done for us? That he died on the cross and he covered our sins and he's protected us from judgment and he's removed them. Now, what this means is this. If you bear all things, you're going to protect by covering then to conceal. We are all going to sin against each other. You will sin against other people. So will I. But other people will sin against you. Now let me ask you, when they do, what are you going to do? Is this going to be used for the grand occasion, for the great sob story, all around the fellowship? Oh, look what they've done to me. Alright. A chance to get attention. A chance that, oh, isn't this awful what they've done? Is that our reaction? Or is our reaction to protect by covering and then to conceal? So that if someone has sinned against us, we are not going to get on the nearest rooftop and make sure that everyone knows. Now, I'm not saying there is never a time that one won't mention it to people. That's not what I'm talking about. But the attitude, what is it? If someone has sinned against you, do you want your own back? Or is all you want simply for them to be right with you again and for it to all be forgiven and forgotten? What's the moment, you know, what is it that you really want? Paul says that love bears all things. It's not going to want revenge. It's not going to want everyone to know that you've been sinned against. All it's going to want is to get back in right relationship with as little hassle as possible. Now, sometimes as little hassle as possible is a lot of hassle. But the point is it will be from your side with as little hassle as possible. All right? 
and that you're just going to want that to be right between you and not, as I say, use it to get power over them, not, you know, sort of like, oh, you know, isn't this person awful, look what they've done to me, i.e. blacking them amongst everyone that you possibly can. All right, so it bears all things, and Paul says it believes all things and it hopes all things. Now, this is faith's optimistic outlook on the future. We did a study a few weeks ago, didn't we, about hope. And here it's saying that love believes all things and hopes all things. You see, love looks on the promises of God and is optimistic about them. There's no cynicism about the promises of God. Now, there may well be cynicism about other things. I'm not saying cynicism is always wrong. But there is no cynicism about God and about God's, and about God's promises. For instance, love will never say, I mean, for instance, we know that not many people get healed, all right? Now, is that going to make us cynical about the healing power of Jesus? I hope not. Because the fault isn't on Jesus' side, it's on our side. But if you've got people going around being cynical about healing, full stop, I mean, by all means, be cynical about some of the sideshows that Christians put up loosely related to healing. But can you see, love will never be cynical about God himself and what he does. If the Bible says that healing and signs and wonders are going to happen, then love says, right, I haven't got the faith now, but God is going to do it and he'll give me the faith. Can you see there's that outlook of hope and optimism for the future? And then finally, he says that love endures all things. Hupo meno, and that means to bear up courageously under difficulties. And you remember what Paul wrote to Timothy? He said, endure your share of suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And that means that with tough times, we're not going to be moaning and groaning our way through all the time. Let me tell you, uh, just think God, you know, that God endures all things. Now, I'll tell you, that includes you. Do you realise that God has to endure you? There's worse. I'm a Christian as well. And yeah, God in, and he never moans at me. He never complains about me. He rebukes me, he corrects me when I need it. But can you see, God just keeps going with me. He bears up under all the difficulties. He endures me and he is going to endure me right till the end, until he gets me into glory. So therefore, let's endure each other. And let's endure ourselves and let's endure the sufferings that we have to go through. Okay, right, now there's a, a, a profile of love. But I just want to take your mind back, and we're nearly at the end now, to what I was saying earlier, that what we're talking about here is not the love that you and I have in our own hearts. It's not the human capacity to love Jesus. We are talking here about the love of God. All right. Now, what I want to do, <coughs> just get your Bibles, and we're going to read through from verse to seven, and we're just going to read it as it's written, and then afterwards we're going to do something else. Just read it through with me. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now then, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read it through slightly different. You follow it, and I think this will give you the idea of what Paul is actually saying. What is this love of God that we're talking about? Right, verse 4. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is not jealous or boastful. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus doesn't insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He doesn't rejoice at the wrong, but rejoices at the right. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. And he endures all things. Now can you see here in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is talking about love, but he's talking about the character of Jesus. Not what we can be, he's talking about what Jesus is. Remember, agape, it's the love of God. Not our love, but the love of God and the love of God alone. Let's see if we can, we've seen that it's Jesus' love. Could it be our love? Is what Paul, you know, is he saying, well, of course, if you, if you were really committed to Jesus, then you would be able to love him like this, wouldn't you? All right, let's try it like this, all right? We, as Christians, are patient and kind. Christians are not jealous or boastful. Christians are not arrogant or rude. Christians don't insist on their own way. Christians are not irritable or resentful. Christians don't re rejoice <coughs> at the wrong. Christians rejoice in the right. Christians bear all things. They believe all things. They, in, they hope all things. And Christians endure all things. Now, does that prove the point? Does that strike you dead? That strikes me dead. Beresford is patient and kind. Beresford is not jealous of that strikes us dead, doesn't it? Because this isn't something that we are supposed to be. This is what Jesus is. But the point is, Jesus is living in us. Romans 5.5 5, And the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now what we're going to do <coughs> from this point onwards, today we've kind of taken a panorama, a kind of an overview. We've looked at love and defined it in regards to 1 Corinthians 13. But what we're going to move on to next week and afterwards is that we're going to do some studies and we're going to look at love and we're going to look at some of the different facets that make up that diamond. And we're going to understand love in different <coughs> ways from different points of view. And then we're going to conclude and we're going to try and understand as fully as we can exactly what the Bible does mean when it talks about this subject of love, Christian love, the thing that we've made so insipid, so wet, so middle of the road, so, and I'll be frank, so yucky, because it is yucky. It is yucky what we've made of love, and God isn't yucky at all. But we're going to get down to it, and we're going to find out all we can about the nature of God's love and the nature of love itself from different angles. So we start on that next time, and that will bring this series to an eventual conclusion. So we will end it there.